Indeed, we praise God. That's what we're here to do together this morning, to praise God and praise His name uh, and to celebrate the life that we have in Him. And so as, as we come to this part of our service, we're going to hear from God, hear from God's Word and a few of my reflections, which I hope will be helpful to you uh, and to us as a congregation. This morning, we're ending our sermon series looking at uh, River Park Youth, but faith to the test. Over the last six weeks or so, we have curated some questions and concerns from the young people in our congregation. Uh, We've looked at all kinds of different things, and this morning, we're ending looking at self-image. How do we see ourselves? And what does it mean for Christians to have a good and healthy self-image? So, I've been reading a lot of dystopian fiction recently. Uh, And if you don't know, dystopian fiction uh, imagines a world that uh, has gone wrong. And it's gone wrong more often than not because people are looking for comfort or for a feel-good life in all the wrong places. And then the novel comes in and imagines the fallout of that. So I've been reading a book called The Every by Dave Eggers. The Every describes a world in the very near future and see how difficult this is for you to imagine. The world's largest social media company merges with the world's dominant e-commerce site. It creates the richest and most dangerous, but also oddly most beloved, monopoly. This monopoly is called the every. The every manages every aspect of people's lives, their work, their friendships, their recreation. Every, everything is optimized and directed. Almost everything is provided for you. But also, everything is being watched, recorded, evaluated, and ranked against other people. The paradise that is promised of technology to help everything, actually becomes a life of stressful panic where everyone is watching and assessing all the time. The pressure to succeed and to conform, to fit in, the pressure to have good ideas or to behave in certain ways just grows and grows. In our post-pandemic world, sometimes the truth seems just as strange as fiction. More and more, we see only small differences between even post-apocalyptic movies in our world today, between stories about mean girls at school and our actual experiences, between the world that we imagine, or the, the world that movies imagine, where all the power is held by very few, and our actual real world existence. Life today is more stressful than the years past that we remember, in part Because the problems of today have not been solved, or at least not yet been solved. What's more, we live in this gray zone, this area between ages. There is the world as it was before our pandemic, and now our world as it's becoming after our pandemic. Many things are accelerating and changing all around us. And so in that context of all that, I want to invite you this morning to reflect with me. And to to hear the words from Scripture, what should Christians do? How should we see ourselves? The temptation for any person is either to see ourselves as too big, to think too much of ourselves and blow up with pride, 
or to think too little of ourselves, to huddle into a corner, to withdraw from the world. But I hope you see this morning as we open up God's word that God has something better for us. So I'm going to read for us from Psalm 139. We're going to read the second half of the uh, chapter, starting at verse 13, and we'll end at the end of the psalm. This is what the psalmist says. as a, It's a prayer. He's talking to God. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They, others, speak to me of, speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? And abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them among my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me to the life everlasting. So far, the reading of God's word. In Psalm 139, the part that we're focusing on, the psalmist says that a couple things about people who belong to God. The psalmist says that first, people who belong to God will be humbled, that we'll see ourselves as we truly are. Second, that we'll experience amazing grace, that we'll receive far more than we deserve. Third, that we'll begin to want what God wants more than what we want. We'll love what God loves and hate or abhor what God abhors. And I talked in last week's sermon about how that word hate in English has a very negative connotation to it. But in, uh, in the language of the Psalms, that the word abhor is really more about horror, of, of being horrified and distanced from the things that God uh, is also, God also abhors. And fourth, we will continue to grow. So, let's go through this last half of the psalm together. If you belong to God, the first thing the psalmist says, and we're here, we're looking at verses 13 to 16, you will be humbled. Who's celebrating? Yeah. When we hear the Bible talk about being humbled, I think most of the time, we think of the word humiliation. We think of some proud or rich person being canceled or disgraced or, or ground into the dirt. We think of humiliation as about losing face, being ashamed. But this is not what the Bible talks about. Biblical humility is really about seeing yourself honestly, 
seeing yourself as you really and truly are. The great problem of our modern world is that some of us see ourselves as much greater than we are. We're bigger and more important. Or we think we're bigger and more important than we really are. And by contrast, others of us, usually many more others, see ourselves as much less, much smaller, much less significant than we really are. The solution to both problems is humility. And humility, again, is not feeling badly about ourselves. Humility is seeing ourselves as we truly are. Humility does mean recognizing, first and foremost, that we don't measure up to God's perfect standard. That our actions have uh, won shame for us and separated us from God. And so humility does begin in a difficult place. But the Apostle Paul says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. See, humility is not humiliation. Humility is not what other people do to you. Humility is a choice that you make for yourself. Humility is the root of Jesus' summary of the law, which Henrik mentioned earlier, and I'm going to uh, say again here in Matthew. Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself assumes that you love God, but also that you love yourself appropriately. You see, if you love yourself poorly, then to love your neighbor as yourself means that you'll love your neighbor poorly as well. If you always beat yourself up after every social interaction, if you criticize yourself when nobody's looking, you won't be able to love your neighbor well. You'll end up offering them the same criticism that you silently or quietly give yourself. Humbling yourself does mean that we recognize that we don't live up to our own hype, that we don't live up to other people's expectations. But more than that, humbling ourselves means that our identity is not based or located in our accomplishments or our appearance or our abilities. It means that our self-worth, our identity, is based in God, in what God has said about us and to us. Humility means that we stop comparing ourselves first with the world around us, with our friends, with our coworkers. It means we stop listening to others in order to form a self-image, an image of ourselves, who we are and if we're valuable. Instead, humility means we look to God and we listen to Him. When you do that, when you look to God and listen to God, when we do that in Psalm 139, the first thing we hear is God's evaluation of you, God's creation of you and love for you. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm one of your works, and your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Wow. Let's pause there for a moment and just reflect on that. How rare it is in our world today for people to simply stop 
and celebrate one another and, even ce- and especially celebrate ourselves because we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by God and each and all of God's works are wonderful. Only humility, count humility in God, trusting in God, counters both the temptation to think too little of ourselves, but also the temptation to think too much of ourselves. People who belong to God will be humbled, but also people who belong to God, second point here this morning, will experience amazing grace, far more favor and, and joy than we deserve. You see, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we put our hope in him, then he becomes most precious to us. And we experience God's grace far more than we deserve. So I invite you, if you're you're the kind of person who closes your eyes, imagine you just for a moment to close your eyes and imagine what is most precious to you. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your home, your financial security. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's the dreams that you have that are so precious and you're never going to let go of them, that that hope or dream you have for the future. Now, what would it take for you to value a relationship with Jesus more than that thing or that person? What would it take for you to value a relationship with Jesus more than that? If we're honest, I think some of us, maybe even many of us would say, well, that's never going to happen. Or I just don't expect it to happen. We love our family, our homes, our financial security. We love our job. We're happy and willing to let our faith fit into those joys and pursuits in our lives. But we're not, frankly, willing to take Jesus at his word. And to try to experience or expect to experience the kind of magnificent wonder that Psalm 139 talks about. But we can. We can as God's people. See, the biggest reason we don't ever experience more than we deserve, and far more, as Paul says, far more than we could ever ask or imagine, the reason is simple. You do not ask Or you do not have, James says, because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. The motives being that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, we don't ask God to shape us and form us. Instead, we ask God to give us the kind of details of our lives that we are not able to take care of in our own strength. We want, we're, we're, we're compelled as people, it seems, to try to earn what we deserve based on our own abilities. And then to ask God to, to do the extra work, to fill in the rest, after we've done all we can. But when we try, when we live that way, when we live based on our own abilities, we'll never be surprised or overwhelmed by God's grace. You see, we'll, we'll just, if we live in our own abilities, then we'll only ever get what's owed to us. And sometimes in a broken world, we won't even get that. And so we become more and more miserly. We count every penny. 
We uh, remember what we think is deserved to us and also the things that were robbed or taken from us that haven't, that what others owe us. But if you humble yourself before God, if you give yourself fully to God, then you will be more and more amazed by His amazing grace. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's amazed and overwhelmed by God's favor to him, by God's love for him, God's provision in his life. One theologian says the thoughts of God, referencing this middle chunk, verses 17 and 18, the thoughts of God are too magnificent, too numerous, too exalted for humankind, whose thoughts are fully known to God. It is impossible for creatures to comprehend our Creator fully. God's plans are beyond humankind's ability to comprehend, as they are more in number than the sand of the sea. God's thoughts and plans are like a dream. But unlike a dream, God's love is real. When we wake up, the psalmist, or when he wakes up, the psalmist still knows that he enjoys God's presence. End quote. So what does it look like to give yourself more fully to God so that you can enjoy his presence? To listen to God, to find your source, uh, your identity, your self-image in God. All verses 19 and through 22 direct us in the right direction. Say that we will be, this is what it looks like, that you'll begin to want what God wants more than you want what you want. That you'll begin to love what God loves more than you love what you love. You'll begin to, to abhor, is the Hebrew word, and to be horrified by the things that God are horrified, is horrified by. In other words, begin to want to distance yourself from those things and, and, and walk back from them. To want what God wants more than what you want. Recently, I posted a meme online of a man sweating buckets. And the caption read, this is what happens when you, look hard, when you looked hard for something and told your wife it was there, it wasn't there. Let me start over. I screw this up already. Sorry. This is the caption. When you looked hard for something and told your wife it wasn't there, and then she goes to look for it. Some of you maybe know the scary feeling of that. You're sure that it wasn't there, and now somebody else is arguing. Are they going to prove you wrong? But imagine for just a moment, if this was the entirety of your relationship with someone. Every time you're supposed to look for something, you just give up. Every time you're supposed to try something new, you say, oh, it's just too hard. Can you do it for me? Every time you're supposed to walk or even run, you get nervous. You say, oh, this looks like pretty rough terrain out there. Will you, will you hold my hand? These are just small, everyday examples. But it's often the dozens of small ways every day in which we do exactly this kind of thing in our relationship with God. We ask God just to solve our little problems because looking for it on our own was just too hard. And when we can't figure out the details of our life on our own, we'd stop trying. We ask God to fill in the gaps. What kind of relationship is that? 
That kind of attitude treats God more like a personal assistant or a maid, which is not how my wife wants to be treated, nor how any of us want to be treated. It's not the basis of a strong relationship. And let's not forget that God is in charge of the whole world. I'm not, you're not. Brothers and sisters, you'll know that you're experiencing a deeper relationship with God, that your self-image, your sense of yourself is being formed by God when your wants begin to change because your heart begins to change. If we only ever ask God to do what we want him to do, then we're asking God to be transformed more and more like us and to be shaped more and more like us. But that's not the Christian life. Instead, the Christian life is the coming to God and asking, God, change my heart. God, change my life. God, shape my cares and concerns. Direct my relationships. Guide my hands, my path, my desires. This is how real love works. Not just love of God, but love of anyone. So we stop asking God, please do this for me. And we begin to wonder how we might serve and love him. Again, to use that meme behind me as an example, most relationships start after the honeymoon period with one person trying to change the other one. Be more like this. Don't do that. Stop it. You're embarrassing me. Immature infatuation seeks to change the other person. Make them more like me. But a real powerful love makes you want to work on yourself. It makes you eager to see and to search out the good in the person whom you love. And as you see the goodness in them, you become shaped by them. I want to be a little bit careful here, but this is almost the same thing as we see in Jesus becoming human. That God loved the world so much that he didn't just try to fix us from the outside, but that Jesus became human, exactly like us, so that he would know, uh, not just knowledge in an abstract sense, but know and experience the pain and brokenness of our world. And yet, would show us a perfect and good way back to God. That's real love. To become the other person, to become like the other person. That picture of real love culminates or ends in Psalm Psalm 139, excuse me, with two halves of an idea. The first half we see in verse 23, which is that if God is in charge now, that God is in charge now, It's God who searches, God who tests, God who evaluates. But it's not a God who's far off. God is in his rightful place as the more powerful, the good, the wealthy person in the relationship. God calls the shots. But God also is right there, testing and knowing our anxious thoughts. And the second half of this ending is psalmist asks God and invites each of us to ask God, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's such a beautiful picture to me. 
walking with God in everlasting life. And God, again, is leading, not from some far way off in the distance where you could just barely see him, but walking alongside, gently guiding us left and right, now taking the high road and now the low road. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, imagines the difference between heaven and hell. And he makes, goes to pains to say, I don't think this is actually how it is, but this is how I imagine it to be. Every week, C.S. Lewis imagines that a bus goes from hell to heaven. And anybody who wants to can get on the bus. And the bus doesn't so much go a long distance from hell to heaven. It's more like it grows. In other words, hell is a, a pinprick in the grand scheme of the whole universe. And heaven is expansive and vast and full of beautiful things. But nevertheless, the bus goes from hell to heaven and anybody who wants to get on it can get on and anybody who wants to get off and look around in heaven can get off and look around. And every week, a few people, not always the same people, a few people get on the bus and they make the journey to heaven. And God is so gracious that even if people want to stay in heaven, they're welcome to stay. They can get off the bus. They can go further up and further into heaven, closer to God. And so every week this bus comes and every week a few people get off and get to the edge of heaven and they start looking around. What do you think happens? On C.S. Lewis's book, they immediately start complaining. Ah, look at the way these people all here think they're better than me. Ugh, that light that's coming from the throne. Could somebody turn that down? What about this one? Well, things weren't great in hell. They were fine. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I don't see why things will be any better here. And so inevitably, the end of the bus trip, everybody gets back on the bus and goes back to hell. The idea that heaven could be held out for us directly right in front of us and that we would directly refuse it. Even when it's right in front of our faces. That seems ridiculous to us, I think. And yet this is exactly what a broken self-image does. God stands right in front of us. He's right with us through his Holy Spirit. But far too often we're busy looking in the mirror or judging ourselves against the neighbors or competing with our friends for attention or for promotions. We hear the words of God and we maybe glimpse the promises of God and we say, ah, that's too good to be true. So brothers and sisters, when you look in the mirror this week, when you compare yourselves to your neighbor or compete with your friends, take Psalm 139 with you. I literally mean that. I didn't have time to do this this morning, but I'm going to do it later over the summer and give you an opportunity to get some stickers and take them with you. But I really do think you could take Psalm 139 with you. You could print it off, stick it to your mirror, put it in your wallet. So every time you pull out your credit card, you have to see those words. Stick it to your backpack, 
I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I know that full well. When our self-image is shaped by God, the other parts of our lives can begin to fall into place. Let's pray. Let's come to God. And uh, we're going to thank him for the opportunity to meet him through his spirit in communion again. Father God, when our self-image is shaped by you, all the other parts of our life can begin to fall into place. And so we ask this morning that your words would permeate our hearts. We ask that you would stick your words in our minds, write them on our hearts, so that we wouldn't forget. More than that, Lord, that we begin to be shaped by your words to us, your love for us, and the life of your Spirit in us. Thank you for the opportunity again this morning to celebrate the life of Christ with us and within us and your Spirit's power present within us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we're going to celebrate communion. As I said uh, earlier in the service, everyone who's a part of the family of God is invited into deeper union with Christ at the table. When I say something like that, it's important that everybody has the opportunity to participate. And then uh, we had an ordering snafu at the church and the things, these little cups that we had ordered aren't here yet. And so uh, if you didn't have a chance to get one of the cups, I think we're, we may be out or we may be nearly out at the back. There's some extras up front and there's also uh, more juice and there's some actual real good bread up front. So even if you have one of these cups um, and you'd like some real bread, I'm going to invite you forward later in the, uh, just in a minute or two. Um, but, uh, so I'm going to hand sanitize, but we, don't, uh, we just have to be careful. Um, so if you're uncomfortable with that, I'd encourage you to, to take one of these uh, pre-filled ones if you don't have one already. But that's the details of what we're doing together this morning. When we come to the table, we celebrate that God invites all people who trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior and who want to be a part of the family of God to celebrate the family meal. This is the table of God where we gather together as the family of God. And in the family of God, God is in charge. God leads us. God guides us. God feeds us and fills us, not with bread and juice, but with his Holy Spirit. And so you're invited to come this morning to receive the benefits and the blessings of Jesus' atoning death and of his life-giving resurrection and to submit your heart and yourself once again to Jesus as our ascended Lord. When we come to the family table, we come not defined by our individuality. though All of us have unique and beautiful things that make us who we are. Instead, we come as a community. We come as the family of God from all our diverse and different backgrounds, united together in Jesus Christ our Lord. Drawn into fellowship with God and invited around the table, where even now we get a glimpse of heaven on earth. We give thanks to the God, the Father, that our, that our Savior Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. I'm off today. This is bread took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. But this time, I invite you to take, eat, and drink. Remember and believe the body and blood of Jesus given for you. And if you'd like to come forward and have some more, you're welcome to join me up front. body of Christ for you. Many of you know that I've served here at River Park for about a year and a half since COVID, uh, or since uh, January 2021, and all of it has been during COVID. And there's uh, two stories that I hear again and again about our congregation. First one is that the potlucks are really good. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that, not having yet experienced it in 18 months. And the second is just about the, the tactile and the, the involved part of worship where we actually get to share the elements with one another, where we, can, where we can really dance wherever Henrik is. People who can dance can really dance. It won't be me. I will try. But where we can, we can enjoy one another's company and the life uh, and, the, and the, all the expressions of what it means to be human together. So even uh, as we get a little taste of that this morning, it's just beautiful and fun for me to get to have people come to the table and I look forward into the fall where we'll be able to uh, continue to have opportunities for people who would like uh, just something a little more prepackaged and reserved, but also something uh, for people who would like a more of a tactile experience. When we come to God, He always meets us in very uh, in, in the, the ordinary stuff of our lives. I think we make the mistake often of thinking that well, we come to church and God's there waiting for us, but God has not been waiting for us, not in a passive way, sitting on, his, sitting on his hands, twiddling his thumbs. God has been active in our world, waiting for us to join him and to respond to him. And so as we prepare to go into this week, we're going to sing a few more songs uh, before we go. But as we prepare to go into this week, I invite you just to join me in a word of prayer and to uh, seek God's leading in this week. So please pray with me. Father God, we heard in the sermon this morning that we can be shaped by you, by your great love for us in making us fearfully and wonderfully, that your works are wonderful and that every one of us is one of your works. 
God, I pray this morning that we would know that full well the way the psalmist does. Guide us and shape us, Lord, so that we begin to love what you love and desire what you desire so that we see you at work already in our world, actively waiting for us to join you and that we are overjoyed to come alongside and serve and love others, to give of ourselves because as we celebrate in communion, you have given your self fully to us. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus Christ our Lord, for pouring forth your Holy Spirit who equips us for service and leads us on in truth. And we join our voices with all the saints and angels and the whole creation to proclaim the glory of your name. Here, uh, as we open our mouths to sing a song in just a minute, but also with our lives, Lord, may we proclaim your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.